Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A cry for help heard on a barren stretch of road in San Antonio, Texas, on June the 27th, led to the discovery of one of the deadliest people smuggling incidents in American history. A nearby worker followed the sound to an abandoned truck. Inside were the bodies of at least 46 migrants from Mexico and Central America. There was no air conditioning and no drinking water. The temperature outside was sweltering. Seven more died later in hospital. At a press conference, San Antonio's mayor, Ron Nirenberg, expressed his and the city's shock. So the plight of migrants seeking refuge is always a humanitarian crisis, but tonight we are dealing with a horrific human tragedy. So I would urge you all to think compassionately and pray for the deceased, the ailing, the families. It was also a sobering reminder of the risks people take to enter the US illicitly. America is struggling to deal with a surge in migration. President Joe Biden is trying to balance that concern with a desire for a more humane immigration system. His critics in both parties say his policies are stoking disorder at the border. The pressure is building on security forces and humanitarian efforts alike. Perhaps nowhere is the challenge clearer than in Texas, which shares nearly 2,000 kilometres of land border with Mexico. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how should America tackle the border problem? My guest is Republican Senator for Texas, Ted Cruz. His state has one of the most heavily trafficked borders for migrants, and the senator frequently and vocally takes Joe Biden and the Democrats to task. A devout Baptist and son of a Cuban immigrant, he was elected to the Senate in 2012 after a career as Solicitor General for his home state. In 2016, he went toe-to-toe with Donald Trump in the race to become Republican presidential candidate and beat him in Iowa, but eventually withdrew. And though the pair had a tempestuous relationship to start, Cruz was one of Trump's most loyal allies when the president was in office. He's seen as a standard bearer of radical right-wing conservatism as Republicans shape up for the 2024 White House race. Senator Ted Cruz, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. At the end of June, America witnessed one of the deadliest human trafficking incidents in many decades along the border with Mexico. 53 migrants in all died after being found in an abandoned lorry in San Antonio. Are you expecting to see more tragic incidents like this in Texas? Well, unfortunately, yes. What, what is happening at our southern border is, is truly a tragedy, and it, and it is horrific. And, and the death count keeps going up and up and up. Just this past weekend, I was down at the border. I brought a group of seven senators down to the border to see firsthand what is happening there. 
And I've been to our southern border many, many times. The U.S.'s southern border is 2,000 miles long. 1,200 of those miles are along the state of Texas. And I think it's important for people to see firsthand what is happening there. It is absolute chaos. It has never been this bad, as bad as it is now. We arrived Thursday night late, and the first thing we did is we went out on midnight patrol with the Border Patrol. And within minutes, we encountered people crossing illegally. You don't have to wait very long for that to happen because it's a constant flow. The first group we encountered was a group of three teenagers, two girls and a boy, 16 and 17 years old, who had crossed from Guatemala and Honduras. The next group we encountered a few minutes later was a larger group of about a dozen, mostly women and children. It included two seven-year-old girls, each of whom was unaccompanied. They had no parent, no family member. They were not sisters. They were not related, just two seven-year-old girls who were part of the larger group. And that pattern keeps going every hour of every day. And, And the people that are bringing these folks in, they are vicious human traffickers. They are drug cartels. And the death toll keeps going up and up and up as a result. This is clearly a really difficult problem to resolve or even to address in a both humane way, but also effectively. And your Republican and Texan colleague, Governor Greg Abbott, blamed the tragedy on President Biden and what Governor Abbott called his open border policy. But if there really were an open border policy, why would people risk their lives trying to make such a deadly trek with so many of them trying to bypass the border controls and enter undetected, also in a way that that you've just referenced? So with respect, it's actually not that difficult of a problem to solve. And we know how to solve it because we had done so in 2020. The United States had the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years. We had largely solved the problem, not entirely, but a long way towards solving the problem. And all of that changed the day Joe Biden became president. The first week Biden was president, he made three political decisions that caused this crisis. He immediately halted construction of the border wall. Secondly, he immediately reinstated the failed catch and release policy, which means when someone's apprehended, they're given a court date sometime in the future, they're asked to appear, and the vast majority of them never appear. But thirdly, and this was the most indefensible of the decisions, Biden ended the incredibly successful Remain in Mexico agreement. So what was Remain in Mexico? Remain in Mexico was an international agreement that President Trump negotiated with the government of Mexico. And under that agreement, it says that people who cross illegally into Mexico, typically from Central and South America, must remain in Mexico while their U.S. asylum cases are are proceeding. And that agreement worked incredibly well. It resulted in the rates plummeting. And the first week in office, Biden ripped that agreement to shreds. And today we have the highest rate of illegal immigration in 62 years. It was a direct result of Biden's decision to open the borders. I'm going to to jump in there with a couple of points. One is that many of these factors are, of course, outside the control of President 
Biden, and that is the impact of the pandemic on immigration flows and the determination of of those who've been affected by that, their livelihoods, the economic plight of many countries to the south of America's borders. So some of these things, you might fairly say, you can argue about the policy, but some of them are simply outside his control. And also Title 42, that pandemic era rule, which allows the immediate expulsion of border crossers, including asylum seekers, is still in place. Look, the pandemic was present before and after. The pandemic was present under Donald Trump, and we didn't see open borders and a massive influx of illegal immigration. It happened when Joe Biden changed the policies. The economic conditions in those countries, look, Central and South America, particularly Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, they have challenging economic situations. They have challenging crime. But you know what? They had challenging economic situation and crime in 2020. That didn't change. So what would a successful approach from the Republican side look like? And how strongly do you think that it should lean on Title 42, which a lot of people really don't think was a particularly effective way of going about it, even when the situation was a little calmer than it is now? It's actually a very simple answer. You reverse the three catastrophic decisions Joe Biden made the opening week. You resume construction of the wall and you finish the wall, number one. Number two, you end catch and release so that when you catch people, you actually enforce the law and deport them. And then number three, you re-enter the Remain in Mexico agreement, which proved to be a tremendous success. I can tell you, I spend a lot of time with Border Patrol agents. I go to their evening musters. I go out on midnight patrol with them. I am good friends with the leaders of the Border Patrol Union. Those guys are frustrated out of their minds. Imagine for a second, you're a Border Patrol agent. You go out, you risk your life. You're catching very dangerous drug traffickers, human traffickers. You bring them in and your political superiors turn around and release them. And you go out and catch them again the next day. It is maddening. It is infuriating. You mentioned Title 42. Look, if we had a federal government that was actually following the law and enforcing the law, you wouldn't need Title 42 because you would be deporting people who try to enter illegally. The reason why Title 42 is the only thing stopping this from going from cataclysm to to a cataclysm of a different order of magnitude is that Title 42 is the only basis under which the Biden administration is deporting anybody. The vast majority of people they apprehend they just release. Under Title 42, there is a limited population right now between 30 and 40 percent under Title 42 that they're sending back. And Joe Biden wants to end that so that they release 100 percent of the people in this country. That would truly be a disaster. We can argue more about whether Title 42 complies with refugee and asylum law, but can we agree that at some point it will need to be replaced? You came up with some thoughts that you think could be put in its place, but what about the relationship with Mexico? We've seen Mexico's president, Obrador, committing billions of dollars to a modernization of the border. Isn't that a possible way to proceed? So it's not because the Biden administration wants open borders. AMLO was cooperating with President Trump because President Trump pressed AMLO to do so. And so what was really effective that AMLO was doing is that he put Mexican soldiers on the southern border of Mexico. The southern border of Mexico is much smaller than the northern border. It's easier to patrol there. He did so in response to Trump's pressure. As soon as Biden came in, it became open season and the influx happened. And I got to tell you, I brought seven senators down to the border this weekend. Last year, I brought 19 senators down to the border. You know who wasn't there? Joe Biden wasn't there. Kamala Harris wasn't there. 
No Democratic senators were there. And uh, politicians do choose their times to visit the Mexican border, I think. W- would you just just would you allow a little bit of fairness there? OK, but and let me make this point. They can choose their times. But you know what their time is? Never. Joe Biden as president has not been to the border once. Kamala Harris as vice president. She's ostensibly the immigration czar has not been to the Rio Grande Valley. That is the epicenter of this crisis even once. Democratic senators don't go. And let me tell you why. There's a reason. It's not just scheduling. Oh, we couldn't do it this week. The reason Biden doesn't go down to the border is if he went, the TV cameras would come. That's why Biden refuses to go. America's immigration system was designed at a time when most migrants were Mexican single adults coming to the U.S. for work. Today, we have whole families and children arriving around the world, many seeking asylum. It is up to Congress to change these laws. And many blame Congress for the failure to modernize America's immigration system. So what changes are needed? And would you consider, for instance, the the one that might have the most impact, which is more legal pathways for work? So I agree Congress needs to act to secure the border. And and we have my Democratic colleagues refuse to do so. They have decided open borders are the policies they support. You know, I would note that's a couple of times you've said you said earlier that the Title 42 didn't comply with international standards. And secondly, you said, gosh, couldn't you let more people in legally? Let me note there is no country on planet Earth that is remotely as generous with allowing legal immigration. We allow over a million people a year to come to the United States legally. I am the son of an immigrant who came from Cuba seeking freedom. The United Kingdom, which I love, the UK doesn't have a legal immigration policy like America does. France doesn't. Germany doesn't. No country on earth does except America. We are incredibly generous and we welcome and celebrate legal immigrants. But I'll tell you, Anne, it is not remotely compassionate for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to send hundreds of thousands of children into the care of human traffickers who are physically and sexually assaulting these children. It is horrific and indefensible. I think they're very well aware of that angle. I think you just have very different ways of trying to resolve it. And that's why I say we should allow for some fairness here. So so what's their way of resolving? Hang on one second. On France and the UK that you you referenced, yes, of course there are problems. There are big problems in the English Channel, not far from where I'm sitting now, but nothing of the magnitude of the length of the Mexican border. So let's do a hypothetical situation. Let's flick a switch. Illegal immigration is resolved in America, largely. What would the right migration policy be? Who would you let in and why? My view on immigration, I I sum up in four words. Legal, good. Illegal, bad. So let's assume you're hypothetical. I'm not necessarily willing to assume that, but let's assume in terms of legal immigration, I think it makes sense for us to shift to much more of a skills-based immigration system, a point-based system. There, There are other countries like Canada, like Australia, like New Zealand that have point-based systems that give points for things like a degree in STEM fields and engineering, a, a medical degree, advanced training that lay out a point system so that we are attracting immigrants who will generate jobs and benefit the American economy. And I think not only is that better for the United States, I also think it's more fair because right now America's legal immigration system There's a degree of randomness. Let's say you're a little girl in Honduras and you want to come to America. You want a better life. Right now, if you want to come legally, it depends on the pure roll of the dice. If you happen to have a family member who's here already, the vast majority of our legal immigration is just based on a family member of one person who's there already. 
think a much more fair system would be to tell that Honduran girl, okay, if you want to come to America, work and study and develop the skills, and here's the path to earn a way into becoming an American. And I'll point out when my dad left Cuba, he came in 1957, he came to America, he was, he was 18, he couldn't speak English. He had $100 sewn into his underwear, but he came, he went to the University of Texas. He got a math degree. He became a computer programmer. He, he started a small business. He generated jobs. That's a legal immigration system that makes sense. But unfortunately, in today's political environment, the Democrats oppose that and have blocked efforts to move towards a much more rational legal system. It sounds very tough, Senator, on poorer immigrants or those who don't have the facility or the potential of your father? Does that trouble you? It's actually not tough. Uh, Look, my father was a poor immigrant. He washed dishes making 50 cents an hour. He came here with nothing. It's much more fair because it gives a path to get in. There are 7 billion people on planet Earth. We can't allow all 7 billion to the United States. We have to have a system to determine, okay, who gets to come? There are many more that want to come than we can reasonably allow. I think it's much more fair to lay out an objective point system and say, if you want to come, here's what you need to do to do so. That's much more fair rather than saying, you know what, you you had the bad luck of not having a family member there, so you can't come at all. That is the opposite of fair. I just want to ask you one very brief personal thing before we move on to another subject. I was the correspondent in East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall, and you've said that you do feel that the wall or reconstructing the the idea of the wall that was proposed and pursued by Donald Trump should be part of this solution. Is there any part of you, particularly with your family background and your father from Cuba, that would think it's just a very odd thing for America to be doing in the 2020s, to be putting up effectively concrete infrastructure at its border? The last time I saw that in such a powerful guise was before 1989 in East Berlin. So I, I think that analogy is just just categorically false. There, there is a difference between a wall to keep people out and a wall to keep people in. The Berlin Wall was a tool of oppression. In my office, you can't see it right now, but there is a painting about 20 feet in width of Ronald Reagan standing in front of the Berlin Wall, standing in front of the Brandenburg Gate. Above top in German, in the style of the graffiti, are the words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall the most important words said by any leader in modern times, and and Margaret Thatcher and Pope John Paul, that the three of them were in leadership together, won the Cold War, that is qualitatively different from a wall to stop people from breaking the law. And it is, I was once doing an interview with Jorge Ramos, and and he, he called me a traitor to my race because I believed we should enforce the law. And I asked the question, I said, Jorge, if I crossed illegally into Mexico, what would they do? And he laughed and said, oh, they'd deport you. And I said, why is it every country on earth can enforce its laws but America? Following the law it is reasonable and right and a good thing to do. Although that rather depends on the law. I'm going to move us on, if I, I could, to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade and the ruling that 1973 declared abortion was a constitutional right. Shouldn't there be some exemptions for very young women, some of whom appear to have to go out of state? You've been very critical about sex trafficking, abusive young women in Texas and indeed in the context that we've just been discussing and and the implications. Would you not support abortion in the case of the product of these rapes? So what I'll say, and I'm also getting the hook, so this has got to be the last question here, but 
On the question of abortion, it, it's an issue that is a deeply emotional issue. It's a divisive issue. There are reasonable people of good faith who disagree strongly on the issue, are on both sides of the issue, and, and I understand that. I think the Supreme Court was wrong in Roe versus Wade. For the first 185 years of our nation's history, abortion was decided by elected legislatures, and different states resolved it in different ways. In 1973, seven unelected judges said, to heck with you. You, the voters, don't get to decide. We know better, and we're going to declare the rules for everyone. I think that was wrong. It was contrary to our Constitution. I also think Roe versus Wade produced enormous division because the disagreement on it had no natural outlet. It had no safety valve. You couldn't go in the democratic process and argue for what you believed because you had unelected judges saying, we set the rules. The Supreme Court, I believe rightly, overturned Roe versus Wade. And the result of that is that questions of abortion will now be returned to elected legislatures where, where different people will resolve it differently. That means in blue states, states like New York and California, you'll continue to have effectively unlimited abortion on demand. In redder states, you'll see some meaningful restrictions, and the restrictions will vary state by state, and it will reflect the values and mores of the citizens, and, and that's how our Constitution designed the system to operate. I have a couple of very brief questions for you. So, so I, I, I apologize, but I'm literally I'm literally going to lunch with my 11 year old, and so 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 we've got to wrap up. That is a, a, an important day, but so, but let me ask you: Will you be supporting Donald Trump if he runs as 2024 presidential candidate? Well, I appreciate that question. He hasn't made an announcement yet, so we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Well, let's say that you're not going to say that you're going to support Donald Trump or, or not. I, I, I apologize. I, I really am going with my 11-year-old now. So, so thank you very much. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure visiting. Thank you, Senator Cruz, who had to leave us abruptly there for another engagement. Ted Cruz set out his concerns about the border and laid out his vision to fix America's immigration system. But what are the practicalities? I wanted to get the view from Alexandra Sewage-Bass, one of our senior U.S. correspondents based in Texas, who's been reporting on the border for years. Hi, Alexandra. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Anne. Tell us what you made of that encounter with Ted Cruz and his current focus and his preoccupations as you heard them. Well, Senator Ted Cruz is not alone in calculating that the border is going to be a winning political issue for Republicans. This is an issue that deeply concerns a lot of Americans. Perceived chaos at the border, high levels of illegal immigration really resonate with Republican voters. And so talking about that and calling attention to this issue is potentially winning political strategy. And that's why we see so much attention given to this issue by Republican politicians. And stripping away the partisan fire and fury of his attack there on Joe Biden, repeated attacks really, has Ted Cruz got a point that control of the US-Mexico border has slipped out of the control of the administration? Absolutely. I think that the border is without a doubt an important issue, and it is one that Democrats are failing at articulating a vision for. The reality, though, is much more nuanced than Senator Ted Cruz has led us to believe. The idea that global migration trends are in the control of a U.S. president is incorrect. This is not just a U.S. phenomenon either. Right now, we're seeing the highest levels of global migration 
across the world, not just into America, that we've seen since World War II. So many millions of people are on the move. And it is true that when President Biden took office, there was a perception that he was going to create a more humane immigration system and that it would boost the likelihood of being able to get into America after President Trump's much more restrictive immigration regime. It's not just President Biden's new system that is encouraging people to come. In fact, the immigration system and border system as it exists is a decades-old system that's really in need of an overhaul, which we can talk more about. But many people are actually frustrated with President Biden that he hasn't done more to reverse many of President Trump's restrictive immigration policies. But some of the policies that are left on the books, like Title 42, are contributing to the chaos at the border. And that chaos is encouraging people to come. And when I say chaos, what I really mean is the differential outcomes that are occurring on the border. People are coming from many more countries than they have come from before. So you're seeing many more Turks, South Americans, Ukrainians, others come to the U.S.-Mexico border either to seek asylum or to try to pass through undetected. And whether or not they're able to be sent back to their home country determines whether or not they're released into the United States. So it's a much more complex issue than Senator Cruz has articulated. You've been reporting from the border for some time. Does the picture that the senator paints tie up with what you've seen and the concerns of people that you've spoken to? He referenced the low morale of border patrol officers there. It was very strong staff about terrible things that were happening. So is there a bit of a, a counter case that we also need to look at that this situation really is so out of control that at least on that score, people will be giving him a hearing? It is absolutely true that Border Patrol and border communities feel frustrated with the White House, but their frustration extends beyond the White House to Washington, D.C. This administration has not taken the border as seriously as I believe it should, and that border communities and those who work on the border would like to see the border be treated. But The reality is that the border is an issue and immigration in America is an issue that really needs a revamp. And that needs to be tackled by Congress and Washington. And many people I've spoken to, for example, the mayor of McAllen and others, really point the finger at Congress in addition to the White House. And why has Congress failed to get an immigration policy through? And is there any hope that it might do so, given the broader divisions here? I think there is no appetite for bipartisan cooperation on immigration. I think it's so easy for Republicans to say that Democrats are failing on immigration um, and they do not have to offer solutions about how to fix either the border or legal immigration into America more broadly. And we see how this is just an issue that cannot be dealt with at all in the failure of Congress to deal with the dreamers or the childhood arrivals who have not been offered a path to citizenship despite some bipartisan support for that effort and presidents throwing their weight behind this issue. So I don't think there is a political will to fix this issue, despite the needs for America's labor force and national competitiveness to have more legal immigration. Let's turn to the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade and the implications. What I heard was a strong defense of states' rights from the senator. But were you reading more into the way that he couched his answer and also what this question means to him more broadly? 
I think you're right that he argued that ultimately the Supreme Court is returning more power to the states. But I think we are seeing the push toward state power be done inconsistently. For example, if you look at the New York gun case that was ruled on by the Supreme Court, there was the assertion that actually states did not have the ability to restrict gun rights. For example, New York's very restrictive gun law was challenged. And so I think that Senator Cruz may give that narrative about states being empowered, but it does not seem to be a consistent principle across this Supreme Court session. I asked Ted Cruz if he'd be backing Donald Trump if indeed Mr. Trump does make another bid for the presidency. And I didn't get too far on that one. Where does this leave Republicans like Ted Cruz? I thought it was so interesting that you pushed him on that too. And he was unwilling to say, I think that he is retaining optionality. He wants to see what is going to happen. And there is so much uncertainty around 2024 that I think Republicans do not want to go on the record either for or against. But he has asserted himself to be a very strong ally of President Trump. So I would be surprised if President Trump runs and Senator Cruz did not support him. But I think he's just retaining his optionality in depending on what happens with President Trump's legal woes. I love the phrase retaining optionality. I'm definitely borrowing that one, Alexandra. <laughs> and just just your, your opinion be, before we leave you, do you think that Cruz might be thinking of a run himself or, or is Ron DeSantis too much in the way, the Florida governor? Senator Cruz has in the past thought of runs himself and it has never panned out for him. I think that it's so clear in polls that it is President Trump who is far and away favored by Republican voters as the number one choice. And then Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, as the clear number two, that I would be surprised if there was space for Senator Cruz. But maybe he is thinking of a different post if either of those two men assumes the White House. So again, he wants to be careful about who he backs. He certainly seemed keen to be in the argument. Alexandra Sewage-Bass, thank you very much indeed for your thoughts and for joining me. Thank you, Anne. And do let us know what you think. What would it take to solve the border problem? Will the two sides ever be able to reach across the aisle? Write to us at podcasteconomist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. To read more of Alexandra's excellent reporting from Texas and beyond, head to our website. And there you'll also find our Lexington column, which this week takes a look at Donald Trump and his rivals. Of course, to enjoy it all, you should become an Economist subscriber today. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the bookings producer is Melanie Starling-Condon. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.